Hi. I'm going to do a little bit of stalling because I know the 9 o'clock people are coming um, as well, and or warm-up, I should say, not stalling. Um, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to ask you all to help me identify, if you were to project your... Just if you were to project yourself into the future a significant amount of time, let's say for us as human beings, let's say 50 years. I mean, that's a lot of time for a lot of us. Many of us, I don't think, will be alive in 50 years, and others will be the babies that are um, in the church right now will be younger than I am, but not by much when that 50-year period is is past and try to and just for a bit of context think about who was in this church 50 years ago and thinking of us in this moment was about as far off as our doing that same exercise is just the the wheels of time and the perspective of 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 our own mortal existence and the reason I ask you to think about that is to say what what of the church that you love would you like to be strong and healthy 50 years from now? Right. So just what of the pieces of, of, of the Christian community experience that you love? And, and, I, um, and it can be here or it can be elsewhere, but if you could just, um, if you have a thought that occurs to you that you would really love to be strong and healthy 50 years from now, what, what are some of the things that occur to you that you just hope won't be lost or we neglected or taken for granted? Anything that comes to your mind just quickly at all? Anyone? Yes, ma'am. The tradition. And when you say tradition, can I ask you just to explain a little bit more what of the tradition means a lot to you? Yes. Right, right. Not become too modern. In other words, so that we don't lose the... Um, and, and we're known as a traditional church, right? If you ask your friends who are not members of an Episcopal church, their image of us, tradition is one of the first words that comes to mind, right? Um, and for good reason, because we carry with us the um, really ancient practices of Christianity in the way that we conduct our worship, including the clothes that clergy wear, right? I mean, nobody wears those clothes anymore. But we wear them in church because they hearken back to a tradition that remind us we didn't invent this five minutes ago, but we have inherited something precious that we have been entrusted with and carry on. Is there anything, yeah, is there anything else? Yes, ma'am. Okay, <laughs> getting specific. I don't want to lose the hymnal of 1982. All right, because I'm just. That mood has grown up with me, and I can harken back to it when I need. Right. You know, I think back to it. Right. It's a part of my life. Right, right. I agree. It's music touches a part of us that is very deep. And so when, um, when we hear a song or a hymn or we hear the organ begin the prelude of whatever, it just yeah. creates all of those associations that ground us spiritually, right? For those of us for whom this tradition is um, music, that musical part. What else? What else are some of the things that you would um, really want to make sure? Yes, sir. What I call the openness of the symbolized by the 
It's not the Episcopal Church's communion, it's God's communion, right? So all are welcome. Do you think that's an official position of the Episcopal Church? No. As a matter of fact, it's not. And I can tell you that in my, and which is astonishing to me, um, that it's not. And the interesting thing, to, and the reason I mention that, and I believe in the same practice, I say the same thing, but the reason I mention that is to highlight the fact that tradition evolves, right? When I was a child, and I was briefly in an Episcopal church as a child, I moved around a lot, and I don't know if any of you did as well, but I, I bounced around from a lot, besides not being in a church for a long period of time, I bounced around a lot. But when I was a child, you couldn't receive communion unless you were confirmed, right? So when did that change? It changed. It changed, right. It changed with the 1979 prayer book. And with the 1979 prayer book, and I don't know if you remember how controversial that was. I was in seminary in 1982, and it was still, these were, these were hot topics in pastoral theology classes. When could babies receive communion? When can babies receive communion? After they're baptized. After they're baptized. Any child, any child who is baptized, any baptized Christian, when I was a child, were other Christians welcome at our communion table? No. Right? Um, that changed. All baptized Christians are welcome at the Lord's table in the Episcopal Church. That's a very recent change in our tradition. Now, some would say, I happen to agree, that it is um, it's an authentic expression of Jesus' table worship, table um, hospitality. Um, but we are friends, uh, I am, as your bishop. I'm not in the minority, but I am in the, let's just say that the, the tone and the tenor of the, of the bishops right now is that is not changing anytime soon. The official teaching of the Episcopal Church is not as Luis welcomes you and as I welcome you. Um, all are welcome to receive at this table. The official teaching is all baptized Christians are welcome, right? All that is to say, now how does tradition change? Does tradition change because the bishops one day see the light and say, oh, of course, that's how we should do it. Of course we should have women clergy. Of course we should, you know, fill in the blank for something that was impossible to even imagine 100 years ago, right? Tradition changes because people change, and people ask their churches to change. And then the question becomes, how much do we change? How much do we change without losing something core to who we are? And how much, are, how much of those of us who love what we love are willing to stretch for people who are not among us? Okay? And that, for me, is actually where I lose the most sleep as your bishop. Because the people for whom this tradition is actually not hospitable grows by the day. And it's not because we're changing all that much. In fact, I think we're becoming more hospitable. It's the gap between us and the rest of the culture is growing so vast that we don't even realize how, how invisible or how just unattainable we seem to the majority of people that we, that we know and certainly that our children know and their, their friends. 
We're just, we're just so, so I just ask myself, and this is not, I'm not, I'm not putting anything on the table. I'm just, one of the questions I ask myself is, as I think about what we love of our tradition, and I would agree with you, what we love about our music, and I agree with you, but is, is there room for other people in our church for whom the 1982 hymnal just doesn't cut it, you know? They love music as much as you love music and as much as I love music. They just happen to love different music, right? Is there room for them somewhere in our church? I'm not saying St. John's Lafayette's where, but, oh gosh, no. But um, although I'm impressed, frankly, you guys, you guys have a broad palette of music in your church, right? And so, so I'm not saying, so I just think, so it's just an interesting question. So when I think about called for a time such as this, which was the loose heading of my um, remarks today, I seriously believe and I've actually staked my life and the rest of my life's work on the premise that the tradition and the ethos and the theology and the way of approaching the world that is inherent in the Anglican tradition as it's lived out in the Episcopal Church is priceless. And it is also of great value and could be of great value to the culture in which we live. Um, but we do have... Um, a bit of a delivery system problem, um, just a little bit, because we are so, 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 so small. And um, while St. John's is a robust church, um, it is still a relatively small church in the way churches are growing across the spectrum of Christianity. And so our influence and our, our ability to affect the cultural dynamic is diminishing, diminishing. Because, of our, because we're so small. And so one of the questions I ask is, how can I help in the time I have as your bishop, how can I help create robust, vibrant Christian community in the Episcopal Church across a spectrum of life experience, across a spectrum of engagements with our tradition, culture? You have uh, Iglesia San Juan. They're not singing out of the 1982 hymnal, right? Because that's not their hymnal. Right? And, and why should they? And in fact, I was, I was a missionary in Honduras at the time of the Episcopal Church when we were actually translating the hymnal into Spanish, our hymnal into Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work. Because right? it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't from their culture, right? It wasn't from their heart. They needed something that connected to their heart. And, um, and so those are just some of the questions that I think about. Now, before, yes, ma'am. Right. Yes. I would agree um, that a vibrant church. There are actually people actually study. You know, people do this for a living, right? There are people who study what a vibrant church looks like and what are the over, you know, what are the characteristics of a vibrant church. One of them is a commitment to. Um, to service, um, although the, frame, the, the framing of it to me is really intriguing. They call, the, the way the, the, the sociologists call it is the churches that are committed to pastoring their community. Which I think is a wonderful phrase. 
service in some ways implies I can keep you at a distance, right? I can serve you a meal, or I can serve you, but you are the needy one, and I am the benefactress, right? I'm not saying that that's what you meant, but that, that there is that overtone in not always. I mean, not always, certainly not always, but, but there is that sense of, but pastoring assumes like a relationship, that we're, we are in community, like, uh, that, that St. John's Lafayette Squares considers more than just the people who are in its membership roles as its responsibility, as its call by God to be in the world, and that part of our mission as a church is to be in relationship with our communities in such a way that we, we even if people don't even know what it means to be a Christian, have no interest in being a Christian, say nonetheless, that is a great church. Because when I go, you know, because of what, you know what that church does? And they point to the things that we value, and they say that about us. And in, a, in a, an increasingly pluralistic world, that's a really great thing, to be able to have the culture say, don't really know anything about what they believe, but the way they act in the world, you know? And, I mean, think about Pope Francis, how many people are just completely intrigued by the man, right? In part because of what he says, but by and large, it's because of what he does. Right? It's because of how he acts. It's the, it's the Pope-mobile, you know? It's this little Fiat driving around in Washington. <laughs> Hilarious. But, you know, a statement, right? Um, that kind of, whoa, that's what it means to be a Christian. And so, yes, of course, we, we can't lose that. Yes, sir? The older what? I don't know what she was talking about. Um, I could guess, but um, but I don't know. Um, I think what I, I'm glad you mentioned the the general convention though, because I'd like to ask you, um, ask those of you. First of all, let me ask: How many of you would you've been in the church for six years? How many have been? Uh, and your name is Kay. How many have been in the Episcopal Church or St. John's like Kay for six years or less? Okay. Um, so about five or six, seven maybe of you. Um, and then, and I would guess if we asked the same question in the worshiping community, it would be larger, right? Because you're the hardcore. You came to hear the bishop talk <laughs> about the future of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Boring! Um, so let's go, 10 years or more. 10 years or more? 10 years or more. Okay, so you, you know, you're, you're the, okay. So how many of you had heard of Michael Curry before he was elected presiding bishop? Not quite half. Um, I urge you, urge you, urge you, if you haven't already, to spend some time listening to Michael Curry. And he's easily accessible now on all kinds of live streaming. Um, One of the amazing things about, and I've never witnessed, I'd never been a part of, nor had I witnessed, an election of a presiding bishop before. And just to remind you of the process, there was the search committee that tried to, you know, like a, like a congregational search to find what we were looking for. You had to be a bishop of a certain, you couldn't, you couldn't retire, you couldn't be 72 in less than nine years. Like that was the one criteria, right? Because you, you have to live, you know, you're, it's a nine-year term and you have to retire at 72. Whole process came down to four very qualified candidates, right? And Michael Curry was elected on the first ballot by an overwhelming majority of bishops. And that had... Very cool. 
And apparently that has never happened, right? Never. And when I was sitting, we, you know, we, uh, the way, I don't know if you, how, how much you want to know about how our polity works, but the, um, um, we, we, were dele- we were a deputation of me as your bishop, and there were four clergy and four laity elected from our diocesan convention and a handful of alternates. And the, night, the, night, the day before the election, all four candidates um, answered questions before an open meeting of everybody. Anybody who wanted to hear the four of them talk could sit in this enormous convention center room and listen to them answer questions, right? So we all got to hear. Only bishops vote. But we all got to hear. And then the, the lady and the clergy consent or affirm the vote. And so that night, I met with the deputation, our deputation. I said, I'd really, they said, do you want, it? Do you want our opinion? I'm like, yes, I want your opinion. And um, we went around the room. And to a person, everyone in our deputation was hoping that I would vote for Michael. And I got to the floor of the, we had this Eucharist service. And then, and then all, the, all the bishops were processed out to like, Native American flutes. It was so cool. And we get on these buses to go over to the cathedral to do the actual voting. It's completely silent. And, um, and I, you know, kind of sort of walk up to one of my colleagues who's older, older in the house than I am, and I said, so why isn't anybody talking? Like, you know, are we going to caucus? Are we going to, you know, are we going to, you know, are we going to barter? You know, how does, how does this work? <laughs> and he said, I don't think we're talking because I think we all know. So why is Michael Curry, and as we were walking, and, I, and I've known Michael for a while, as we were walking, he was just walking very quietly with his head down. And I could, I could tell from the way he addressed the, the, the group, the, the larger group, I could tell that he knew he was called. I mean, he, he couldn't tell if he was going to be elected, but he knew that he was called. And he, he spoke with such power and grace and clarity. And so I just walked up next to him and I said, Michael, for a time such as this, for a time such as this. And why do you suppose Michael Curry is our presiding bishop now? Why do you suppose? Okay. Just to just give you some demographics or some, some, some coordinates about his life, right? Son of Episcopal priest, right? Son of Episcopal priest, um, grandson of a Baptist grandmother who taught him how to sing all the old Baptist hymns and taught him his Bible backwards and forwards, right? Taught him to love his Bible and love the old Baptist hymns, right? Um, His father was an Episcopal priest. He became an Episcopal priest. He served in a number of congregations, most most extensively in Baltimore, where he worked, um, you know, he worked on the side, you know, just on the sides for justice in every conceivable, as well as building up schools and programs. He was a bishop for 14 years. If you've ever heard him preach, you will hear the word, the name Jesus invoked more than any other Episcopal sermon you have ever heard in your life because the man is utterly and completely devoted to being a follower of Jesus Christ. And he knows, I think, that that's not our strong suit as Episcopalians, that we are not at home in language. It doesn't mean that we don't have a devotion to Christ, but we are not comfortable talking about it. And that makes us very poor conversation partners for people who don't have a clue as to what it means to be a Christian, which is a population that is growing. And also for people who not only don't have a clue, 
but don't even really care. Right? And that population is growing. Right? And so if we're going to be in conversation with people in our midst about a tradition that we love, we can, we can, we can become you know, like a really cool club that gets smaller and smaller and smaller because we love our tradition, right? Um, which is what happens when, it, when, it, when a species is in an environment that is no longer friendly to it. And I would argue that the Episcopal Church is in an environment, it's not necessarily hostile, but it's just indifferent. You know, it's just indifferent to us. And so we can still create and must create strong, strong churches, but we also have to figure out what the boundaries are between us and the culture in which we live, right? And I think the reason Michael was elected was because he gets that at a level that is just deep to his core. Just one second. And he know, because he's from the black church, raised in the black church, he knows all about the fact that you can be committed to social justice and be a lover of the gospel and not have those things be mutually exclusive, right? You can do both of those things at the same time. He's also, also multilingual. He probably has the 1982 hymnal committed to memory, because right? he loves to sing. And he, his favorite sermon illustration, I kid you not, because I listen to the guy preach all the time, his favorite sermon illustration is the moment in the movie The King's Speech when, when, the, king, when the king gets his voice, right? He refers to that all the time. I mean, this man is an Anglophile through and through, right? But he's also a southern preacher, right? Yeah, and he can reach young people, and he can talk to those of us who are over... You know, I mean, he's just... So he's embodying for us this opportunity to expand our repertoire of being church so that it doesn't threaten us to have diversity because we can have more than one way of being church and still be the church, right? So were you going to raise your hand, sir? Did you, you were going to say something. So isn't that the question that we all wonder through life, isn't it? How can I not lose what I love in a changing world? Right? Um, and I would say two things. Um, let me, first of all, let me, I'll give you an illustration. Um, how many of you have music on your smartphone or your iPod, pad, you know? Um, so I was in a... Um, so, and would you, would you guess, I mean, how many of you have children that are younger than, you know, like, or, you know, how many of you have children or grandchildren? Right. Okay. How many of you think that you, the music on your grandchildren or children's iPad is different, our smartphone is different <laughs> from the music that's on yours, okay? All right. And so if you were to guess what, so here's the thing. So I was down in Lexing, Lexington Park, Maryland, 
having the same conversation a couple of years ago. And we were having this conversation about kids and music and what they liked and didn't like. And, um, and while I'm talking, the rector goes downstairs and she brings up the junior high, senior high youth group class, right? Marches them up all in front. Has them all in front, right? And she says to them, okay, kids, what kind of music do you have on your music listening device of choice? And you can guess what they said, right? Here's what they said that I was not expecting. They said, we love all kinds of music. If you, li- if you looked at my playlist, you'd think 10 people own this list. Because what I like, I just like diversity. I mean, think about it. This is a generation that grew up not with albums, right? You don't have to sit through the whole album to get to your favorite song. You just hit a button, right? Um, so they've grown up with diversity. And as you notice from your own young adult population here, there's no correlation between young adulthood and a certain style of music. You know, it's young people and older people like, some people are stuck, some of us just like one, you know, James Taylor all the way for, you know, for some of us. Um, but... Um, I was just kidding. But the, um, but the idea of like, but very few people nowadays, and certainly more and more, like diversity, right? And so I would say to you is, this is the question, this is the harder question, what might you be willing to share or to give up so that somebody else could experience what you love from what they love? And where, what do you need to have met in your life so that you could be generous somewhere else. Right? Does that make sense? Like we all, we all can love what we love, and we all can find God in the ways that we find God. My, you know, if I were to, like my closing thought to you about what the future of the church is, if more of us are willing to be curious about what other people love and strive to meet them there, rather than convincing them that loving what we love is the way to eternal life, right? Or at least worship at 11 o'clock, right? Or, you know what I'm saying, I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a... I'm just saying that could we create a church where the first question is to people that we're trying to engage, you know, pick a, pick a demographic that you'd like to have more of in your church. You know, pick, pick one. Maybe you, there isn't one, and maybe you're balanced enough that you really think you've got all the demographics touched upon. And you're pretty good, actually. You've got a, got a broader range than many. But, but what if, you know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times people say, we, well, we've lost all the young people. We need to get the young people back. And I'd say, well, do you know any young people? You know, who are the young people that you know? And what's on their hearts right now? And what are they thinking about? And, and would what we offer have anything to say to them? What are the older people in your neighborhood, I mean, older people like in a, you know, I don't mean that in a sort of categorical way, but not just people by demographics, but people that you actually know in your coffee shop, in your place of work, in your neighborhood. What is it that we might offer that is of Christ? And, and what would it look like to pastor our neighborhood, right? Pastor our people. So that's one characteristic of a vital church. Um, Some of the others are um, a commitment upon the part of its membership to daily spiritual practice. Daily spiritual practice um, of however you define that. Um, Preferably 
rooted in some kind of uh, connection to the sacred scriptures. And again, this is just when they look at churches that are vibrant and growing, and I mean, that you would all look at them and say, that is a, a live church. Um, a commitment to encouraging our people to pray and to spend time with God, to find a chair or a window that you like to sit beside or a, um, a walk in nature, whatever it is for you, but that you say, this is my practice, this is my time with God um, in a way that is different than my on-the-fly time with God, which is where God and I spend most of our time together, right? On the run. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that. I'm really grateful. I, but, but to say from my part, you know, actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to spend time tending to my relationship with God, and I'm going to encourage my people to do that, and we're going to actually hold each other accountable to that. We're going to talk about it. How, how was it. How's it go for you this week? Right? Um, so that's another vibrant. And it also it allows people a chance to talk, to talk about that in such a way that somebody says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Can you explain it to me? And you can say, well, this is how it works for me. It's different for all people, but this is what I do, right? And have anybody asked you that? Like, how exactly do you pray? And he's like, well, it's a mystery, but here are some of the ways I pray, and here are the things, you know, sometimes I feel a connection, and sometimes I don't, and sometimes I, I work at it, and sometimes it's just spontaneous. Um, sometimes... I'm alone, and sometimes I'm with people. You know what I'm saying? But we just we, we begin to develop a vocabulary based on our experience. Um, and the third is um, creating opportunities for growing in faith that are not based in preference. Like, we, we don't have conversations about whether you want right one or right two or which hymnal, but we actually are, how are you doing in your walk with God? What are some of the issues that you're dealing with? And creating opportunities, usually in smaller groups, where people can get real with each other about that. Um, and then the fourth is, um, is uh, creating a clear path for people who are on the outside to come in. A clear path. Because it all seems clear to us because we're in it, but for people who aren't in it, it could not be more foreign. And ours is one of the most complicated to understand. If you think about it, just think about the education level you need to have to feel comfortable in an Episcopal liturgy, right? It's pretty high, right? Um, not always, I mean, because there's a lot of it that's mystical, and, um, but in general. So how can we break that down a little bit so that people who are walking in for the very first time get caught up in its beauty and its power, but don't feel like embarrassed because they don't know what they're doing? And, and you've, you, you have a lot of really nice instruction in your bulletin. That's a big help. Just to say, and to have it all, and you know, that's, those are really kind things to do to people, for people, as a, as a, you know, someone who's visiting, you know, you're not trying to hold the hymnal, and the, you know, remember those days, you know, you're balancing the bulletin, and you've got the ribbons, and you know, and um, so does that help at all? So when I, as your bishop, what I try to think about is what, what is strong, and what, it, what is like non-negotiable for us, what is like the essence of who we are. And for me, I'll give you my, um, what I love about our church is its ability to speak and, and to, to, to engage truth 
through whatever means truth comes to us, be it science, be it inquiry, be it intuition, and also that we're open to mystery that is beyond all knowledge. I love that about our church. I love the fact that we're, we're at, the, at the core, we're a democratic church. I mean, most of the major decisions at St. John's Lafayette Square are made by your vestry, right? But we have all the symbolism of a tradition that goes back to ancient days. I love that about our church. I love about, I love about our church that we, we ascribe to all the creedal you know, affirmations of faith, and we say them every week, even if we don't know what half of what they mean, we say them, and we're open to questioning. Right? I love that about our church. And I love the fact that, as a friend of mine says, we usually fight tooth and nail, but eventually we get around to doing the right thing. And I love that about our church. We actually do change. We change about him. I wouldn't. You think I'd be standing here? <laughs> 50 years ago, would I be standing here? And, you know, no. So, so those are things I love. I mean, I just have my little list of things that I really love about our church, and I want to be there. Um, I love the ancient traditions and the music, but I also love it when I go to a youth event and there are 3,000 young people singing their hearts out, and dancing in the aisles. I love that and want more of that for the young people who would find God speaking to them there. Does that make sense? So I want to thank you for, and I'm going to open up to questions, but I, also, I just don't want a moment to go by before thanking you for being who you are. Because St. John's Lafayette Square, you are tending to your life and your witness and your ministry in a way that is exemplary. And you will be here in 50 years because of it, because of the decisions that you've made in the past and the decisions that you're making now. And it won't look the same, but you, will, but you, will, you walk in here 50 years from now, you will recognize it because of the essence and the core of your character. Right? There is a charism here that you can trust. And it also gives you freedom, if you choose, to explore on the edges without being afraid that you're going to compromise the center. You have a lot of room. Other churches aren't as blessed with a strong center, so when they start experimenting, they kind of go off in a, in a, in a number of different directions. You don't know if the center's going to hold. Your center will hold. And so you're freer to experiment with things that might surprise you by the people who are drawn to you for other, you know, because of those other um, little little, um, what do they call those little um, dinghy boats that you send out from the mothership, right? You know, just send them out there into the water and, and see. Louise told me that you all rented a bar for a while and had happy hour and young people could come. That's how you first started your young adult ministry? I can't believe that, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you've, done, you've done these things before. And so those are the kinds of things that say you can play with this a little bit because you've got some room. And who knows? Who knows where it might bring you? Any questions or comments of the things I said? We're getting close to, I know I probably need to um, transition probably in about five minutes or so. Yes, in the back there. Can you speak up so everyone can hear you? Right, so the question is, what is our relationship to the wider Anglican communion? 
Well, you know, a communion is, is a communion. It's a body of relationships. It's, it's people who choose to be in relationship with each other. And we are connected through this curious history through the Church of England and the Archbishop of Canterbury and, and <coughs> connections that you and other congregations make across the world. I think it's really special. Um, I think it's really important. Um, it's also, it's not immune from the forces of polarization and mean-spiritedness that infect institutions just about at every level in every dimension of the world right now. So every once in a while, it gets, it gets kind of mean, right? And right now, there are some... So, I, so one of the things to work on in that is to say, okay, let's, let's not feed that part of our dynamic. Let's, let's not pay that... You know, I, my, you know, that whole thing is that you become... You become what you, you eat, right? Or you, you, you grow what you feed. Well, let's not feed that part. Let's work on the relationships that are life-giving and affirming and help us get a sense of the... Because, for example, if you go to South... How many of you have been to South Africa? Do they worship the same way in South Africa that they do here? No. And when you come back and you bring some of that back with you, is it life-giving? Yeah. I mean, it may not be your music every week, but there's something really great about that. And there's something affirming when you hear... Your church being lived out in another culture, there's just something really amazing about that. So I'm, I'm just basically saying I'm a fan, but there are parts of it, like you, that I think, well, maybe I'll just, um, maybe I'll just not engage that part right now. Um, there's some pretty nasty things going on in, um, in relationship. I mean, did you hear what Justin Welby said? I mean, like he basically said he was, he was sort, of like, sort of like John Boehner, kind of throwing in the towel and saying, you know what, we can, I cannot... I cannot try to unify the, the, some of the primates in the southern cone with what the Americans and the Canadians and the Australians and the New Zealanders are doing around issues of human sexuality. I just, I, I've been trying and trying and trying, and we actually will not agree on that. So the question for him is, can we still be a communion if we don't agree on something that for some is that fundamental? And for some people, the answer is no. It's, it's kind of like the Planned Parenthood debate. It's just a deal breaker. And they would, they would give up anything and everything. They will walk away from every table because of our positions on human sexuality. So what do we do about that? One, you know, are we going to change our positions because of their positions? No, we're not going to do that. But what some of us are doing is that we're, we're, we're continuing to stay in relationship with the people in Africa that want to be in relationship with us. And those are usually about four levels down from the official pronouncements, Right? And we're just making friends, and we're talking. And the Chicago Consultation is this group of people who just went over to Ghana and did a whole, it's the third symposium they've done on the Bible and human sexuality in Africa, different parts of Africa. And there are scholars, and there are bishops, and there are academics, and you know, lo and behold, there are gay and lesbian Africans, and um, they're really grateful that we're not walking away. But their church right now is led by people who say we cannot be in communion with, with, with those people, us. Does that answer your question? Sort of a rambling answer, but yeah. Um, maybe one more, and then if there's any, one more. I think the pressure's on, right? It better be good. Man. Um, any other thoughts? Any feedback for me?
Um, thank you, Togo. The question was, what do I need um, from St. John's for, I would say, our collective mission? Um, I personally feel, and I was talking to Luis, the poor man, he listened to me for over an hour the other day, and, and then he said to me, <laughs> he was great, he said, is he here? Is Luis here? Okay, I can say this. I can tell you this then. He says, he says I think you suffer from the same disease I suffer from, the, the disease of impatience. And... Um, <laughs> But I do feel like um, these next four years in my work as your bishop are really a turning point for me. Like I, I feel I'm not the new bishop anymore. I've, I've made the rounds almost four times everywhere, and now it's time to put into, um, into play some ways of becoming more, more um, vibrant and effective in what we're doing and to put some issues on the table about what's not working in our... you know. And it's, it's, this isn't very sexy stuff, by the way. This isn't like gun violence or human sexual, this is like, how does your church work, right? So that's the level I'm dealing with right now, and so stay tuned, but just the fact that you asked, and that you are who you are, and you are as supportive as you are, um, I sleep a lot better at night because of churches like St. John's Lafayette Square, so thank you.